Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. Stories set the tables around which we live our lives. My name is Mike Roth, and this is Story and Table, a personal and academic exploration of Christian ideologies and the systems that these ideologies sustain. Welcome to Story and Table. This is Season 1, Episode 7, An Afterlife Story. According to many Christians today, especially in the United States, the story of the afterlife is clear, concise, and incontrovertibly true. It goes like this. Those who believe in Jesus shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins are destined to live out a conscious, embodied eternity in bliss in a place called heaven. But those who do not believe in Jesus shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins are destined to live out a conscious, embodied eternity in torment in a place called hell. That's the story. Believe in Jesus shed blood for the forgiveness of sins and you will live eternally in conscious, embodied bliss. Do not believe in Jesus shed blood for the forgiveness of sins and you will live eternally in conscious, embodied torment. Let's now consider a few features of the table that this storytelling sets in the lives of people. A first feature is violence and dominion. In other words, an empire story. Remembering back to episode two, a gospel story, any declaration of quote-unquote good news that ends in the idea of quote-unquote or else is not the good news gospel of Jesus. Because, as we observed in that episode, any declaration that adds to burdens, amplifies fear, increases alienation, or magnifies ifs, ands, or buts in order to belong, is not revolutionary gospel. It does not set loving tables, and it is, according to Jesus' intentional Roman gospel subversion, anti-Christ. For Jesus, the Son of God, is a Savior who declares subversive news that is truly good for every person. And for me, this is one of the most scandalous, dismaying, and outrageous aspect of Christianity today, that the very gospel of Rome that Jesus intentionally subverted has, over time, evolved into that same old gospel of Rome, believe or else, always or else. And this leads me to another feature of the table that this storytelling sets, which is a horrifying and unjust story. I'll begin with horrifying. To believe in this story of the afterlife is to believe that the majority of humans throughout human history will go to a place of conscious embodied torment forever. Christians must think about this. To believe in a story in which the majority of humans throughout human history go to a place of conscious, embodied torment forever is truly horrifying. It's also unjust. It's unjust because it's inequitable, because some people will never get to hear this particular story and so they won't even have a chance to believe in it. And furthermore, there will be many countless others who do hear about this story, but it won't make sense to them. Or, for one reason or another, they won't believe it. And one more point here. It's unjust because the notion of conscious embodied torment is inherently unjust. 
When Christians think of people going to hell, it helps to alleviate the injustice by thinking about a really terrible person. And so let's tease this out. Take the worst person that you can possibly think of in human history and imagine them in conscious embodied torment. Now, with this person in mind, I'd like to ask a question, which is, at what point does this person's just torment become unjust? Like, let's imagine for a moment that this person killed 100 million people. And let's say that for doing that, they deserve conscious embodied torment for a billion years per person. What happens after that person reaches this just punishment? Because at some point in eternity, even this just punishment becomes unjust. And yet, here's something that seems to be absent from today's conversation among the majority of Christians, especially in the United States, which is, our ethical thoughts about conscious embodied torment usually have nothing to do with a person's belief. And so, theoretically speaking, the worst person in human history who, air quotes here, deserves conscious embodied torment forever is, according to the story of the afterlife, able to believe in Jesus shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins, thereby ending up in bliss forever without one day in torment. All the while, that really nice, generous, loving neighbor or coworker or friend or family member who fails to believe just the right thing will, according to the story of the afterlife, end up in conscious embodied torment for much longer than 1 billion times 100 million years. For according to the story of the afterlife, they will endure a conscious embodied torment forever because they didn't believe in a story in which God demands that they trust in Jesus' shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins. It's because of this unequivocal injustice that the early church and Catholic church have wondered about the possibility of annihilation or purgatory or post-mortem salvation. And yet, for the majority of Protestant Christians, especially evangelical Christians, such considerations are anathema. And they'll double down saying, God said it, I believe it. Or, it's in the Bible, I can't change it. All the while failing to realize that their particular story of the afterlife does not actually reflect what we see in the Bible and in the early church, which I'll explain in just a bit. But first, another feature of the table that this story of the afterlife sets, which is worry and relational manipulation. In the introduction to this podcast, episode one, I told a story about my sweet Sunday school teacher using the flannel graph to warn us about hell. She placed flames at the bottom and she laid a couple of the pretend kids over the flames like marshmallows on a rotisserie. And then she went on to tell us about how we'd go into the flames forever if we didn't ask Jesus into our hearts. In that episode, I shared about how that story deeply impacted my life. It became a lens through which I thought about God. It shaped my convictions about what was important. It caused me to worry a lot about friends and family members who didn't go to church. And I had many scary and sleepless nights as a result of that story. I tell you this story again because it reveals the natural way in which a person who believes in this story of the afterlife is forced to live. For if a person truly believes in this horrifying story, then they must, they must do absolutely anything and everything necessary in order to get at least the people that they love 
to believe. I remember back in my early 20s being so engrossed in this story of the afterlife that it roused deep concern for my partner's grandparents. Although they were beautiful humans, full of gentleness and kindness, they weren't Christians. And so one evening I went over to their house, I sat with them in their living room, and rather than doing what is most human, connecting, talking, allowing our life together to give shape to a shared experience, I forced upon them my story of the afterlife. And I could tell that my story shocked them. I could tell that my story disturbed them. And true to their kind and gentle nature, they weren't interested in arguing. <laughs> but, but they weren't interested in believing either. Instead, with warmth and kindness, they thanked me for my time and walked me to the door. I can still remember leaving their house. In my head, I told myself that I had just done something brave, something good, but in my bones, my gut, I felt awful. If anyone should be telling stories for the purpose of instruction, it should have been them. Over 80 years of life, nearly 50 years of marriage, the work of raising kids and surviving the Great Depression, they were the teachers of life and wisdom and love. And yet there I was explaining to them their need to believe in shed blood, to forgive sins, so that they could go to heaven rather than to conscious embodied torment forever. It's one of the great regrets of my life. Because, unfortunately, I did not come to realize before they passed that my story of the afterlife did not actually go back to the early church, to the life of Jesus, or to the Bible. And so I was never able to sit before them to say that I am terribly sorry for the night that I forced upon them a religious myth. Which brings me to a final feature of the table that this story of the afterlife sets. The false belief that today's story of the afterlife goes all the way back to Jesus. For truly, that's what most Christians today think. They sincerely believe that their thoughts on the afterlife follow a direct line back to the early church, to the life of Jesus, and to the Bible itself. But that's just not true. It's a misconception. And this brings me to a more honest story of the afterlife, which, at its core, reveals an evolution of thought that is undeniable. Let's begin with this. What if I were to tell you that this is what happens after death? The souls of Christian martyrs, that's to say, people who are killed for their faith in Jesus, go directly to paradise. All others, saved and unsaved, go down to Hades, a literal place inside the bowels of the earth. Now, down in Hades are two enormous rooms. One room is filled with the saved, who receive temporary rewards. The other room is filled with the unsaved, who receive temporary punishment. And this is how things will continue until the great resurrection, at which point the saved will be reunited with flesh for eternal rewards, while the unsaved will be reunited with flesh for eternal punishment the end. Thoughts about this story on the afterlife? Well, besides being strange, no Christian today thinks that Christian souls descend in death to Hades. But here's the thing. The story that I just told was exactly what third century church, the third century church thought about the afterlife. 
Everything that I just told you was penned by the great Tertullian of Carthage, the third century church father who was instrumental in laying the groundwork for the church's articulation of its doctrine on the Trinity. If you want to fact check me, please read his work, A Treatise on the Soul. But this, you see, is just the beginning. If you continue to read church thought on the afterlife post-Tertullian, you'll find an ongoing evolution of thought, eventually leading to that which many people think today. And if you read church thought on the afterlife pre-Tertullian, you'll find an ongoing evolution of thought leading up to Tertullian's thoughts. And if you go back further into the Bible, you'll find an evolution of thought that begins in the Hebrew Scriptures and continues on throughout the New Testament. Because thought on the afterlife has a tradition of change and ongoing evolution, which I'll now explain with intentional brevity. Beginning with the Hebrew Scriptures, other than brief words in one book that was among the last and latest books to be written, the book of Daniel, there is no mention of a personal afterlife. Let's just pause to allow that to sink in. Other than brief words in one book that was among the last and latest books to be written, Daniel, there is no mention of a personal afterlife in the Hebrew Scriptures. Furthermore, in this book, the afterlife that we read about is nothing like today's Christian thoughts on the afterlife. Here's what I mean from Daniel chapter 12. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In these verses we read that many people Notice here, many people, not all people, many people who sleep in the dust will rise. Some will rise to everlasting contempt, and some will rise to everlasting life. And that's it. That's the exhaustive explanation on the afterlife in the Hebrew Scriptures. Notice nothing here about every person rising, just some, and nothing here about rewards or punishments, just undefined life or contempt, and nothing here about places called heaven or hell. And, to be clear, nothing whatsoever about blood or the forgiveness of sins in order to live in eternal bliss. And this, at least in my mind, rouses two important questions. First, why is Daniel's thoughts on the afterlife so vague and undefined in comparison with the church's thoughts today? Well, as we'll see, Daniel is just the beginning of an ever-increasing evolution of thought on the afterlife. Which brings me to a second question. Why is there nothing on the afterlife until we get to one of the latest written books in the Hebrew Scriptures? Well, through the interpretive lens of accommodation, which I talked about in Episode 3, A Bible Story, Part 1, we're able to consider the context and consciousness of the Bible's human authors. And so... Let's ponder the context that gave rise to Daniel's thoughts on the afterlife, which is Israel living under the boot of the Babylonian Empire. That's the context. Israel living under the boot of the Babylonian Empire. 
And it's this context that gave rise to a need, to an evolving consciousness that began to ponder justice. This is where we're going to live out our lives. This is how our children and loved ones will experience life. This is where we will suffer and eventually die under the boot of the Babylonian Empire. What about justice? Now, it could be argued that justice was a value in the Hebrew scriptures much earlier than Daniel, and that's certainly true. However, it's also true that this value for justice didn't take on the ideological form of an afterlife as a way to make up for a lack of justice until Daniel. And this is significant because it's here that we see the beginning of a new kind of salvation. Remember, salvation refers to being saved from a predicament. And the predicament in Daniel is the lack of justice in this life. To which Daniel responds, there will be justice for some in an afterlife. And this brings us to the New Testament. I'll begin with the Gospels, spend a little time on Paul, and conclude with Revelation. But first, a little context. According to Josephus, that ancient Jewish historian, three primary perspectives on the afterlife existed during the life of Jesus. One perspective belonged to the Essenes. The Essenes held to a Greek view of the afterlife in which the body was understood to be impermanent and destined to disintegrate, while the soul was understood to be immortal and imperishable. A second perspective belonged to the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that good souls would pass into a resurrected body. And a third perspective belonged to the Sadducees. The Sadducees denied any life to come. These were the three primary perspectives on the afterlife during the time of Jesus and the early church. This is really important to understand. Why is the New Testament, unlike the Hebrew Scriptures, filled with thoughts on the afterlife? Because, outside of the Sadducees' perspective, first-century Jews were awash in a consciousness that had begun to assume what Daniel had only begun to imagine, which is life after death. And as we're about to see, thoughts on life after death evolve through the New Testament as the authors wrestle with life in Christ within a consciousness that had begun to assume some kind of life after death. And one more important contextual note before continuing. During the life of Jesus, many Jews were steeped in what is called apocalyptic Jewish perspective, which rose during the time of Daniel and continued into the time of Jesus. Simply put, apocalyptic Jewish perspective can be described as follows. God's judgment was coming soon, evil would be destroyed, and the good would enter into God's utopian kingdom here on earth. With this in mind, in the earliest Gospels, Matthew and Mark, we see an emphasis on an apocalyptic Jewish perspective in Jesus' teachings, which emphasizes outcomes based on righteous or wicked lives. In these books, Jesus explains that the righteous will live, the righteous will shine like the sun, which is beautiful, but not very detailed, is it? Whereas Jesus explains that the wicked will be destroyed in hell. But to be clear, the hell that Jesus has in mind here is very different from what Christians think of today. 
In these books, when Jesus refers to hell, he is almost always using the Greek word Gehenna. But Gehenna isn't some place down in the bowels of the earth. Rather, Gehenna was a very real place on earth. Gehenna was a desecrated valley outside of Jerusalem believed by Jews to be forsaken by God. Because Gehenna was a place that pagans sacrificed children to God in the book of 2 Kings. And that's why in the book of Jeremiah, Gehenna becomes a place where corpses are piled up due to wickedness. And so in the earliest Gospels, Matthew and Mark, thoughts on the afterlife reflect apocalyptic Jewish perspective through which the righteous receive unexplained life while the wicked are destroyed in hell, Gehenna, a place on earth that represents ultimate defilement and humiliation. This is very different from the story that many Christians today tell about the afterlife. Today, it's said that people go to heaven or hell based on faith in Jesus shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. However, throughout the majority of Matthew and Mark, the afterlife is determined by a person's righteousness or wickedness. And Jesus' reason for talking about the afterlife in these terms has a purpose, which is to rouse righteous living here on earth. Now, as we move to the later Gospels, beginning with Luke, a noticeable shift occurs as Jesus' apocalyptic Jewish perspective fades and a non-apocalyptic Jewish perspective rises. The difference between these two perspectives is fairly simple to understand. In an apocalyptic Jewish perspective, the emphasis is on God's kingdom that will come here to earth. Whereas in a non-apocalyptic Jewish perspective, the emphasis shifts to God's kingdom somewhere else. And this is what we see in the later Gospels of Luke and John. For example, in Luke, we read two stories about the afterlife that don't exist in any of the other Gospels. The first is found in Luke chapter 16, often referred to as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In this parable, a righteous poor man named Lazarus is dead, but lives on by being carried to Abraham's side. And there's a wicked rich man who is also dead, and he's suffering in Hades. In this parable, the wicked rich man can see the poor man Lazarus and he asks for relief. But Abraham responds to the rich man telling him that the chasm between, between them is too great. Besides, says Abraham, while on earth the rich man had ease while Lazarus had hardship. And so now Lazarus is being comforted while the rich man is being tormented. And then in a second story that's found only in Luke, during Jesus' crucifixion, one criminal, criminal mocks him, but the other criminal defends him. To the criminal who defends him, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And then there's John, who also has a story that's not found in any of the other Gospels. In this story, located in chapter 14, we read that Jesus is going to his father's house to prepare a place for his followers. In these examples from Luke and John, we bear witness to evolution and similarity in Jesus' words about the afterlife. The evolution is that in these later Gospels, the righteous and wicked go places. The rich man and Lazarus go down into the earth. The criminal goes up into paradise. And Jesus says that he's going to prepare dwelling places in his father's house. That's the evolution. 
The similarity is found in Jesus' use of an afterlife, which is to rouse righteous living here and now. Again, this is important to understand because it's very different from today's story of the afterlife in which people go to heaven or hell based on faith in Jesus shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. And this brings us to the evolution of thought on the afterlife in the writings of Paul, who approaches things much differently than the authors of the Gospels. It's through Paul that the afterlife is connected to Jesus' death on a cross. And this is really important to understand. Rather than existing within an apocalyptic or non-apocalyptic Jewish perspective, Paul, a converted Pharisee, held to the Pharisees' belief in a bodily resurrection. And, as a converted Pharisee, Paul was awash in Jewish temple theology and the need of blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Because of this, throughout Paul's letters, we get a front row seat to watch a converted Pharisee attempt to make connections between Jesus' death and a bodily resurrection. Now, continuing in my attempt at brevity, in Paul's earliest letter, 1 Thessalonians, he explains a three-tiered world in which there are those who are asleep in the earth, there are those who live on the earth, and there is Jesus who will one day descend from heaven. According to Paul in this letter, those who are in Christ will be caught up in the clouds with the Lord, whereas the wicked will face destruction. In a later letter by Paul, 1 Corinthians, he works out a bodily resurrection. But this bodily resurrection is only for heavenly bodies. For according to Paul in this letter, all other dominions and authorities will be destroyed. In a later letter by Paul, 2 Corinthians, he begins to work out a judgment before Christ, during which every person receives their recompense, although recompense is undefined. And finally, in yet a later letter, Romans, Paul explains that there will be a day of judgment for every person that is based on deeds. Those who are justified by Jesus' blood will be saved from God's wrath and those who are not justified by Jesus' blood will experience God's wrath. Now, before getting to Revelation, I want to pause in order to highlight a clearly observable evolution of the afterlife based on context and human consciousness throughout the Bible. I want to say that again because it's important. I want to pause here in order to highlight a clearly observable evolution of the afterlife based on context and human consciousness throughout the Bible. As we've observed, it all begins in Daniel. It evolves in the Gospels, and it continues to evolve throughout Paul's letters. In Daniel, we observe the genesis of thought on the afterlife, which grows up out of the human longing for justice. And so Daniel explains, many people who sleep in the dust will rise, some will rise to everlasting contempt, and some will rise to everlasting life. In the early Gospels, Matthew and Mark, we observe an evolution of thought on the afterlife which grows up out of a Jewish apocalyptic perspective. And so Matthew and Mark explain, God's judgment is coming soon, evil will be destroyed, and the good will enter into God's utopian kingdom here on earth. 
In the later Gospels, Luke and John, we observe an evolution of thought on the afterlife as well. But this evolution grows up out of a noticeable shift from an apocalyptic Jewish perspective to a non-apocalyptic Jewish perspective. And so Luke and John explain otherworldly experiences, depending on a person's righteousness or wickedness, immediately after death. And then in Paul, we observe yet another evolution of thought on the afterlife, which grows up out of his pharisaical perspective and temple theology paradigm. And so Paul explains the need for trust in Jesus' shed blood for the forgiveness of sins to be saved. And he slowly works out a theology on the afterlife that progresses from the alive in Christ rise to meet Jesus in the clouds, while those outside of Christ are destroyed, to those in Christ receive heavenly bodies while those who are not in Christ are destroyed, to every person stands judgment before Christ and receives their recompense, and finally, a day of judgment for every person that is based on deeds. With this summary in mind, we'll now finish our observation of the Bible's evolution on the afterlife by considering the three final chapters in the book of Revelation. These chapters are very different from the afterlife that we read about in the Gospels and in Paul's writings. In these chapters, a cosmic picture is painted of an afterlife in which evil is finally destroyed, the dead are judged, heaven descends and weds with earth, and all is at peace because Satan, the beast, the false prophet, death, and even Hades itself are all thrown into what is called the lake of fire about which much debate occurs. Based on this overview, it's easy to appreciate how confusing it must have been for the early church to know what to think about the afterlife, right? I mean, biblically speaking, the afterlife isn't nearly as clear or developed as many Christians today think it is. And that's because the story of the afterlife that many Christians tell today is the result of thoughts that developed in church history, not the Bible. I'd like to say that again. The story of the afterlife that many Christians tell today is the result of thoughts that developed in church history, not the Bible. Here's what I mean. Because the Bible's thoughts on the afterlife lack clarity and evolve, the early church was forced to wrestle with what to think about the interim stage between death and resurrection, and whether the resurrection was bodily or spiritually spiritual. And as I shared earlier, by the 3rd century church father Tertullian of Carthage, he explained an afterlife that is vastly different from the one that many Christians believe in today. Which means that contemporary Christian thought on the afterlife has been deeply shaped by contexts and stages of human consciousness post-Tertullian of Carthage. Which is to say, Contemporary Christian thought on the afterlife has been deeply shaped by contexts and stages of human consciousness that existed within the medieval church, the Protestant church, and the United States church. To better understand these perspectives, think about Dante's Inferno from the 14th century, or that horrifying sermon by Jonathan Edwards from the 18th century titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
or the literal, literally interpreted apocalyptic notions that were proposed by John Darby in the 19th century, which became core facets to thoughts on the afterlife within Christian fundamentalism. You see, today's Christian thoughts on the afterlife are not ultimately biblical. Rather, they are the result of an evolution of thought that's been shaped by historical contexts and stages of human consciousness spanning millennia. Now, if you're still listening, <laughs> thank you. I know that was a lot of content. And yet, I believe it's important content that tells a different afterlife story, which is capable of setting a more loving table. Here's what I mean. One feature of the table that this story of the afterlife sets is humility. We Christians do not know exactly what will happen after we die. No one can point to a verse or to a moment in church history in order to articulate a clear and straightforward perspective on the afterlife. It doesn't exist. And so, rather than thinking that we need to wholeheartedly affirm without reservation some kind of doctrine on the afterlife in order to be Christian, it would be so much more honest to simply say, Christian thought on the afterlife is vast, and it has gone through numerous evolutions. More so, these numerous evolutions have been deeply shaped by historical contexts and stages of human consciousness. We could rightly say this and be deeply Christian. And this brings me to a second feature of the table that the story of the afterlife sets, which is an awareness of historical contexts and stages of human consciousness that results in an openness to dialogue and ongoing evolution. And to be clear, my suggestion here isn't that radical. It's merely an acceptance of what is. From the very beginning, historical contexts and stages of human consciousness have given shape to an evolution of thought on the afterlife in the Bible and throughout church history. And so it makes me want to ask, why stop now? Why allow 14th, 19th, and 20th century contexts and stages of consciousness to be the final word on what we Christians think about the afterlife? What might this 21st century context and stage of consciousness contribute to Christian thought on the afterlife? For example, what might physics, subatomic theory, and quantum entanglement have to teach us about the afterlife, especially in light of our Christian doctrine on the Trinity, the interrelationality of ultimate reality itself? Wouldn't that be worth exploring and thinking about and talking about? A third feature of the table that this story of the afterlife sets is a commitment to justice when Christians tell stories about the afterlife. Here's what I mean. Thoughts on the afterlife grew up out of Daniel's longing for justice. That's where it all started. And so justice should ground the stories of the afterlife that we Christians tell. And because the notion of justice evolves along with human consciousness, we should be the first to let go of stories about the afterlife that can no longer be considered just, such as the belief that the majority of humans will be eternally tormented in hell for not believing in God's need for shed blood to forgive sins. 
That's an old, archaic, and violent, which is to say, unjust perspective on both God and the afterlife. And so we must, we just must let unjust ways of thinking go when it comes to our stories of the afterlife. And finally, a fourth feature of the table that this story of the afterlife sets is goodness today. That's one thing that Daniel, the Gospels, and Paul all have in common in their perspectives on the afterlife, which is how we live today matters. That's why each of them say something about rewards and punishment in the life to come based on how humans live in this life here and now. Unfortunately, for many Christians today, especially in the United States, the idea of an afterlife has come to mean this world is heading to hell in a handbasket and so doing good, caring for the planet, improving systems, and working out a salvation that deals with real predicaments here and now, are often deemed unnecessary. But that's a complete misunderstanding and misappropriation of Christianity's afterlife story, which from the beginning, was meant to rouse goodness here and now. Yes, please. An afterlife story that sparks humility? We Christians do not know exactly what will happen after death. An afterlife story that considers historical contexts and stages of human consciousness, resulting in an openness to dialogue and ongoing evolution regarding what happens after we die? An afterlife story that is shaped by contemporary notions of justice, ensuring that our afterlife storytelling is not archaic or violent. And an afterlife story that is good for today, bettering this planet, improving systems, and working out a salvation that deals with real predicaments here and now. How good is that? More of that, right? I sincerely hope so with all of my heart. Stories set the tables around which we live our lives. May your life be filled with good stories that set loving tables around which you are freed and inspired to flourish. Thanks for listening to Story and Table. If you find this podcast worthwhile, thought-provoking, or encouraging, Will you share about it with your friends and family? And if you don't already support the work of Pearl Church, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org.